Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Hello and welcome explorers to Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. My name is Ben McAllister, I'm a physicist and certified space nerd, and I'd like to bring you along on a short journey through the cosmos. It's late December, the end of another orbit of the Earth around the Sun. It also happens to be the end of the decade and, funnily enough, the 10-year anniversary of the launch of Naked Astronomy back in 2009. Time sure have changed in the last 10 years, and not just here at Naked Astronomy with our love of jazzy synth-pop. Things have changed considerably in our understanding of the universe. So, today, at the end of the decade, we are recapping some of the biggest space science discoveries of the last 10 years. Things that truly altered or advanced our perceptions of the universe. We're calling it the State of the Universe Address. So, without further ado, let's get into it. First up, we're taking a look at some of the most extreme and mysterious structures in the universe. We're talking about black holes. Black holes were first predicted by Einstein as a result of his revolutionary theory of gravity known as general relativity, or GR for short. A black hole is a region in space where so much mass occupies such a tiny volume that gravity is strong enough that once you get too close to it, crossing a threshold known as the event horizon, not even light can escape its inexorable pull. This renders black holes completely dark, or, well, black. Astronomers are known for their creative names. Black holes exist in various places in the universe, but probably the most well-known ones are the so-called supermassive black holes that sit at the centre of galaxies. These gargantuan objects are some of the scariest things in the universe, if you ask me. For context, the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy, which is called Sagittarius A-star, weighs in at a staggering 2.6 million times the mass of our sun. And that is a comparatively light supermassive black hole. We've known about black holes from indirect evidence for a while, basically seeing their effects on other things, the way they pull on stuff that we can see. But we'd never actually seen a black hole until, that is, earlier this year, 2019. You may have heard in the news at the time of the Event Horizon Telescope, a combined effort of many telescopes from all around the world using a technique known as interferometry, which is just a fancy way of combining lots of different data from different locations to get a sharper resolution image. The Event Horizon Telescope collaboration managed to take the first ever photo of a black hole. This phenomenal effort has had some people describing the now famous picture as the impossible photograph. I spoke to Professor Alan Duffy of Swinburne University to hear a bit more about it and to learn why it seemed so impossible. Okay, so there's the obvious statement that a black hole is black because not even light can escape. And that means that when you try to take an image of it, you're essentially taking an image of uh, nothing. I mean, there's no light coming to it, so how can you take an image? (laughs) So, of course, what you do is you backlight it. And in particular, we rely on the fact that material is constantly being accreted or uh, consumed by these black holes and being pulled down this gravitational black hole, as I've described it. And as it swirls ever closer, it becomes ever hotter. And that is the large accretion disk. And we have seen the glow from these accretion disks. But when we, when we 
go to the very zoomed in picture of the black hole, we are really now probing atoms that are swirling around at close to the speed of light on the boundary of the event horizon itself. And due to some complex general relativistic effects, but essentially, if I can not be hung drawn and quarter for saying this terminology, it's just bent. <laughs> so the light is bent around the black hole through this extraordinary gravity. And uh, we are able to essentially see the disk of material on the back side of the black hole away from us. And that bending of the light occurs uh, across the entire uh, circumference of the projected black hole. So we get a beautiful glowing ring of material around a very black shadow region. Yeah, gravity casts a long shadow. Um, so let's talk about the photo. We've, we've talked around it. It's the Event Horizon Telescope, this collaboration. If you just Google those words, if you've somehow managed to avoid seeing this photo, it will show up. You will see it. And yeah, it's pretty much what Alan just described. We've got like that. And, and what you're saying, Alan, is that that ring, that light ring around the big black spot in the center is actually the light from the material behind the black hole being bent around the black hole by its gravity. That's what we're actually seeing there. Uh, yes. So it's, it's material that is uh, swirling around so part of this material will be on the plane some of it will be behind the black hole some of it ha of the light has wrapped around the black hole multiple times in fact what we are also seeing is starlight background stars that have had their light swirled and bent around and done multiple laps of the black hole before finally making them their way to us so it's a very complex origin story for that light that you're seeing. But uh, I guess probably the thing I should have pointed out most is black holes for all their tremendous gravity and uh, enormous masses are actually tiny. The predicted shadow of the Milky Way's black hole is a couple of million times the mass of our sun. Uh, uh -huh. And it's, it's about, say, 30,000 light years away from us, give or take. It was going to present a target that was 50 micro arc seconds wide. These are some terrible units that astronomers love. Yes. A one way to consider a micro arc second is it's about the size of a full stop on a piece of paper that you've written. Uh, and then you've taken that piece of paper and you placed it on the moon. Right. right. So from Earth looking at the moon, yeah. a full stop on a sheet of paper, that's about the size of this black hole that we're trying to see. Oh, space. no, no. It, it, give it give it credit. It's it's about 50 full stops. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, that's generous of it then to make our job a little bit easier. Yeah. Okay, so there's an, an example of, of why it's called the impossible photograph. Uh, so was that the black hole? Was it the black hole at the center of our galaxy or was it somewhere further afield that we took this photo? No, that's right. So eight observatories combined across the world united as one Earth-spanning telescope. That is the event horizon in a campaign that created more data some have said than any scientific experiment ever taken essentially a full night's observing is what the large hadron collider produces in a year uh, so they took all this data they combined it often sometimes even flying the data in giant uh, tape drives Oh, I love that when it's faster to throw a USB across the room than transfer the files through the internet. Yeah, look, the internet doesn't work. We use sneaker net for that, where we, we literally <laughs> have grad students just carry our data sometimes across uh, on planes. Um, so we have this, this incredible operation, this campaign to scan both the black hole at the center of our galaxy. It's close, right? So it should present a large target. But it's relatively underweight, or at least certainly when we compare it to the truly gargantuan uh, black hole at the center of M87, a relatively nearby galaxy, just a mere 55 million light years from us. Uh, 
but it has a mass of six and a half billion times that of the sun. So it was anticipated that that would be a potential target as well that we could see. And indeed, when the, the event horizon crunched the data uh, on supercomputers for an absolutely mammoth amount of computing time, were able to reveal the light surrounding the shadowed region of the M87. So that is the supermassive black hole that we're seeing. It's actually not of our own galaxies, but rather of our neighbors. So even though it's further away, it's easier to see because it's bigger? Partly because it's bigger, but also partly, and this is a little bit to the subtlety of interferometry or how you combine all of those separate telescopes. But one of the challenges that Sagittarius A-star has presented is essentially it's the material is swirling around too quickly, or at least from the point of view of the telescopes. And the way I've heard it wonderfully described is, imagine trying to take a picture of a five-year-old's birthday party, and you're trying to get the, the kids to just slow down long enough to take a picture that's not blurred. <laughs> that is it. That's essentially the challenge that the Sagittarius A-star, our own supermassive black hole presented so it means that's the real impossible photograph alan <laughs> getting five-year-olds to stand still that's yeah truly uh, so, worthy of merit oh look seriously i have an 18 month old and yeah seriously um <laughs> we we know that the the black hole in our galaxy is real that is absolutely possible to still recover the photo it's going to just take a little bit more work and we should have a picture of our own. Fantastic. Okay, so apart from just being extraordinarily cool and a really cool picture to put on the wall in your office, why is this a big deal, the ability to image black holes directly? Well, black holes present the ultimate extreme of gravity, and that is the test of Einstein's GR, which is tremendously, and some would argue, uh, frustratingly successful in, in <laughs> explaining everything that we've been able to throw at it. And really, we're, we're trying to look for a scenario where it breaks, where we have a clue as to what a new theory of everything could be. And this would be the combination of GR with uh, quantum mechanics, for example, or the, or the standard model, the, that of particle physics. The two don't really play well together. So we're always looking for regions where the gravity is very intense, but the scales become quite small. And at the event horizon, you're getting close to an area where quantum mechanics is battling general relativity, and the two would meet in a new, deeper theory called perhaps quantum gravity. So that is very exciting. We are getting an actual experimental test case laboratory to start to explore. There's a lot to be learned still about the black holes but truly when you can see them. There you have it. As we gain a deeper understanding of black holes and the interplay between Einstein's GR and quantum mechanics, we step ever closer to a new theory which describes all the physics in the universe. A theory of everything. For our next story, we're going hunting. But don't go get your shotgun just yet. We're hunting for exoplanets. Simply put, an exoplanet is just a planet outside of our solar system, orbiting a distant star. It's not hard to see why the idea of exoplanets has captivated people for hundreds of years. There's something deeply fascinating and intrinsically human about searching for new lands to explore. And, of course, there's the ever-present possibility of discovering extraterrestrial life. The thing is, for centuries, scientists, philosophers, all kinds of people have believed that exoplanets might exist, but we had no way of knowing. How would you go about seeing a planet orbiting a distant star using a telescope from the 1600s? 
It wasn't until the 20th century that we really got serious about searching for these things. There were various claimed and disputed discoveries dating back as far as 1917, but the first confirmed detections came in the 1990s. You may have heard, for example, that the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded partly to Michael Mayor and Didier Kellos for their work on discovering exoplanets in the 90s. The general principle behind most exoplanet searches is not actually to try and see the planets directly, but to look instead for effects that they create on their host star. Two of the main ways we've searched for exoplanets are called transit photometry and Doppler spectroscopy. Transit photometry is a bit simpler to understand, so let's start there. We simply look at the light coming to Earth from a distant star and track the periodic dips and peaks in the brightness of that light. When exoplanets pass in front of their host star during their orbit, they temporarily block a percentage of the light. This is an effect we can detect and thus infer the presence of the exoplanet. The duration and size of the observed dimming can tell us quite a lot about the exoplanet, such as its orbital period, the length of a year on one of these planets, if you like, and its size. This technique has a few downsides, though. Firstly, it only works well if the planet is aligned properly in its orbit, such that it passes between the Earth and the distant star that we're looking at. Secondly, it works much better for comparatively large planets, which obviously provide a larger fraction of dimming. And thirdly, it has a really high rate of false positive detections. Doppler spectroscopy, on the other hand, is a slightly more complex method of searching for exoplanets. As planets orbit their host star, they pull slightly on that star due to gravity. Throughout an orbit, this causes the star to wobble slightly back and forth. These wobbles cause the light from the star to undergo what's called a Doppler shift. If you've ever heard a car drive past you as you stand on the side of the road, you're familiar with the Doppler effect. It's the idea that, as a source of sound waves moves towards you, the waves are pitch-shifted upwards, and as it moves away, they're pitch-shifted downwards. This creates the well-known sound that we're all familiar with. It turns out that a similar thing happens to starlight as the star wobbles back and forth due to the motion of its exoplanets. The light is shifted higher in frequency when it's wobbling towards us, which means it becomes more blue in colour. And then it's shifted lower in frequency when it wobbles away, making it redder. By detecting these small colour shifts, measuring their size and duration, we can infer the presence of exoplanets and gain a lot of information about them. But what does this all have to do with the biggest discoveries of the last decade, I hear you ask? Well, as I mentioned, we started effectively looking for exoplanets in the 90s, but it was pretty slow going at first. We found a handful here and there, but it initially seemed that exoplanets were quite rare. We found new ones at a rate of less than 50 a year, and for the most part, we were finding very heavy planets orbiting comparatively close to their host star. This was definitely interesting and a massive step in our understanding of the cosmos, but the hunt was really on to find Earth-like exoplanets. That is to say, planets with a similar mass and composition to the Earth, made out of rock and not something else, like gas. There was an extra premium placed on planets orbiting their host star in what we call the habitable zone. The habitable zone is a range of distances from a given star in which the surface temperatures of planets within that zone would be in the right range so that liquid water could exist on their surface. We call it the habitable zone, since all life as we understand it requires water to survive, and hence for a planet to be habitable, it would need to be within this zone. The initial lack of discovery of such planets led astronomers to believe that maybe planets like Earth were extremely rare. 
which was somewhat disheartening to those of us who harboured hope of finding potential alien life. However, this all changed in 2014 when NASA announced the discovery of 715 newly verified exoplanets around 305 different stars by the Kepler Space Telescope. 715 is a significant proportion of the total number of known exoplanets at the time, and we haven't looked back since. Now, there are over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets, with most of those being found in the last decade. Part of the exciting innovation in the last few years in this new boom of exoplanets has been the discovery of more Earth-like planets, and more planets inside their star's habitable zones. These elusive planets, previously believed to be extraordinarily rare, were now cropping up all over the place. To be clear, they are still sort of rare, we've actually only discovered a handful of this very specific, highly prized type of planet, but I'm sure you'll agree, that's a significant improvement over zero. In particular, I wanted to highlight the discovery of an exoplanet known as Proxima Centauri b. It was discovered via Doppler spectroscopy in 2016 by the European Southern Observatory. Proxima Centauri b is an Earth-like exoplanet orbiting inside its star's habitable zone. But the thing that's really exciting is that its host star, Proxima Centauri, is the closest neighbour to our own sun. Just think about the shift in understanding in just this past decade. We went from thinking that exoplanets were comparatively rare, to thinking that maybe it was just Earth-like exoplanets that were rare, to discovering an Earth-like exoplanet which could feasibly sustain liquid water orbiting the very nearest star to our own sun. This has been a massive paradigm shift in astronomy, and has even prompted some proposals for unmanned missions to venture across the 4.2 light years between us and Proxima Centauri b to take a closer look. One such proposed mission, called Breakthrough Starshot, expects it could complete that journey sometime in the next, say, 150 years? But don't be too disheartened by that timescale. Whilst seeing these planets up close and personal might seem a little far-fetched at the moment, as we've learned from the shift in our understanding of exoplanets in just the last 10 years, we can never know what the future of astronomy will hold. And with that, we're about halfway through our State of the Universe address, recapping some of the major discoveries in astronomy and space science in the last 10 years. We've still got two stories left for you today, so buckle up. To understand our next piece, we have to go back in time. All the way back, it turns out, to the very beginning of the universe. Our current best model for where it all began is the Big Bang Theory, The idea that about 13.6 billion years ago, all of the matter and energy in the entire universe was compressed into a single point. When this point rapidly expanded, what we call the Big Bang, eventually creating the universe that we see today, an enormous amount of electromagnetic radiation, or light, was released. As it turns out, we can actually still see the remnants of this very early radiation today in the form of low-frequency light waves permeating the universe. We call this leftover radiation the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB, and it's everywhere in space. We've been studying it for decades since it was first detected, quite accidentally by the way, by a large radio dish in 1965 it's become one of the best tools we've ever discovered for investigating the mysteries of the cosmos and confirming our theoretical models of the way the universe evolves. To hear more about it, I spoke to Peter Quinn, the director of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. We talked about just some of the things we've learned from the CMB, and some of the truly fascinating developments that have emerged in the last 10 years. 
When they first looked at this radiation, they saw it coming from all parts of the sky, and it was very, very smooth. It was the same temperature when we measured, we measured the radiation intensity in one direction, and the other direction was all the same. So that's, that's pretty cool, but we know that at some point galaxies and stars were formed. So at some point, this radiation had to stop being smooth and start become kind of lumpy because the mass and the energy and the mass and the radiation are interacting. So there had to be some imprint, some signature in this radiation of the very first objects that formed in the universe, the very first galaxies. So that radiation had to be lumpy or have structure to it. The next step after finding the radiation was to find the lumpiness, if you like, of the radiation. When the Big Bang went off and when the microwave radiation was released and went through the universe, these fluctuations, these bumps are about one part in 100,000. So if you look at the skin of an orange, you see little tiny, tiny, tiny bumps. They're about one part in 100, right? So one part in 100,000 is much, much finer than the bumps on an orange. So it was very, very small scale structure. We knew we had a measure that microwave background very, very accurately to see a little tiny fluctuation, a little tiny bump of one part in 100,000. So to learn more about the structure of the universe, galaxies and stuff, we want to go looking for these tiny little bumps. How did we go about doing that? So the way that was done, the only way it can really be done is from space. So from space, uh, you're up above the Earth's atmosphere, you're up above all the interference and noise that comes from the Earth's atmosphere. You can look at the sky with radio receivers. So what they do is they stare at one part of the sky and make a very detailed radio map of that part of the sky. And they stare and they stare and they stare and collect enough energy, enough photons to get an accurate picture, to get a very accurate picture. Satellites like COBE, like WMAP and like Planck, these are the names of some of the satellites that went up and tried to find these tiny, tiny fluctuations in, in the background. They had some lots of challenges. They had to also deal with other kinds of things that emit radiation in the microwave, like our own galaxy. So our own galaxy is a much, much brighter source than the microwave background, so they had to kind of subtract away the contribution from the galaxy. And once they did that, in fact, these, these satellites were successful at seeing the microwave background and seeing the lumps in the microwave background. And lo and behold, the lumps were exactly at the right size. They're about one part in 10 to the 5. And so this was also a Nobel Prize winning discovery. This was the lumps, again, we knew should be there if in fact the galaxies were born out of these lumps in the microwave background. Okay, so we've done a lot of cool stuff with these satellites, cosmic microwave background, a couple of Nobel Prizes have been won for work related to it. But that's been going on for a while. What's been going on recently in, say, the last 10 years with these kinds of experiments? There's been an amazing transition. These satellites and the data that they've collected about the microwave background has given us now, I think, a very precise model of the universe. When I was a student, you know, a lot of the really fundamental constants of the universe back in the 1970s and 80s weren't known to a factor of two. We didn't know whether the Hubble constant, which is one of the fundamental constants of the universe, whether it was 50 or whether it was 100. There was no way of knowing it was a factor of two. With the advent of these satellites and the discovery of the microwave background and the confirmation of the Big Bang model, many of the fundamental constants, like the Hubble constant, are now known to better than 10%. Okay, In fact, better than a few percent. So that's fantastic. So we've got a much, what we call, precision cosmology going on. We can actually measure the the fundamental cosmological constants of our universe, like the Hubble constant, to a precision of order of a few percent or so. So you've mentioned these fundamental constants. There's a couple of numbers, right, like the Hubble constant you've mentioned, which is related to the rate of expansion of the universe, and a few other ones that are what we sort of throw into a pot that we call the you know, standard model of cosmology, the, the Lambda CDM model. So you're saying that over the last 10 years, improvements in these satellites, like Planck, which I think is the most recent one, have enabled us to get much, much finer precision on those numbers. Is that about right? 
That's correct. So as I said, that we know these numbers now to only a few percent inaccuracy. So that's actually led to an interesting problem because we have a number of different ways of getting at the Hubble constant. So we can do that by looking at things like stars and supernovae, distant supernovae that explode. We can use them as candles to measure distance and thereby measure the expansion of the universe. That gives us a Hubble constant. We can also extract the Hubble constant from this big picture of the universe, the distant universe, if you like, from the microwave background actually turns out now that they're not quite the same answer. We thought they were pretty close, but one of them turns out to be about 72, another one turns out to be about 68 or so. So, you know, they're not the same number, and now they're so they're, they're known to better than a percent. So those two numbers are now not within the same error bar anymore. So we think that one method is not consistent with the other method, and we're completely confused by that's the question. That should be the case. Okay, and so it's only within the last 10 years as we've, we've had more precision on those numbers and we can then compare them against the estimates of the same numbers that we get using a different method and we're only now realizing that those methods don't actually agree? That's right because the accuracy is sufficiently high now that we can see the difference between 68 and 72. You know before it was you know whether it was a 50 or 100 that was a sort of our level of accuracy. Usually people might think of that as a problem, but we know, of course, when scientists run into something like that, we like to think of it as more of an opportunity, right? Indeed an opportunity. So a lot of people are now writing a lot of papers about new physics because they think, in fact, you know, what we're seeing here, of course, is the stuff that's based on stars and supernovae is kind of giving us the Hubble constant for the nearby or local universe. Cosmology, the Lambda CDM, the cosmic microwave background, is kind of more the big, long, large-scale picture of the universe. So maybe the universe changed. Maybe something happened in the universe between the time of the microwave background and the time of the supernovae in some sense. And that could be new physics. It could be basically evolution in the universe that's causing this difference to occur. So it's, yes, indeed, an opportunity to write more papers about new (laughs) physics. That's great. So two different tools disagreeing. What's your early tip? What do you personally think is uh, the most likely? I'm not going to hold you to this. I'm not going to tie you down and say this is true. But just what are you thinking about at the moment? What do you think explains it? Look, I think the numbers that we have based upon the supernovae and things, I think they they assume probably more. Some of the supernovae and, and Cepheid variable-based tools do have more uh, steps in the derivation, if you want to call it that much, of those numbers. However, I would not be surprised if the universe does evolve in some interesting ways over that cosmological timescale. And, you know, I'm open to that suggestion as well. But the nice thing is I think it's testable. I think as we get better numbers for the Hubble constant, and in particular, if we can start measuring this Hubble constant at lots of different distances, not just nearby and not just very far, but intermediately. So the next generation space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, other kinds of survey telescopes that can look at galaxies that are in this beyond the supernovae, but not as far as the cosmic microwave background range that will be very interesting to see what they say about the Hubble constant as well there you have it new observations of the cosmic microwave background are a smoking gun for new physics which could potentially lead to a deeper understanding of the universe maybe we'll be talking about those discoveries in the recap of the next 10 years our last topic today isn't just one of the biggest astronomy discoveries of the last decade it's arguably the biggest of the last several decades Of course, we're talking about the direct detection of gravitational waves. Gravitational waves are ripples in the very fabric of the universe, what physicists call space-time. Einstein first predicted gravitational waves over 100 years ago as a result of his theory of general relativity. Whilst they were proposed in 1916, they eluded detection for a century. 
To hear more about this historic Nobel Prize winning discovery, I spoke to Carl Blair from the University of Western Australia, who worked on the original result. The first thing I asked him was, naturally, what is a gravitational wave? So a gravitational wave is just like a ripple in a pond. The water in the pond wants to be flat. But if you throw a pebble in the pond, the energy makes little ripples in the pond and the ripples travel off and take the energy away and make the surface of the water flat again. In space-time, heavy things make ripples in space-time. And if those heavy things accelerate, they make big ripples and those ripples travel off as gravitational waves, carrying off the energy and making space-time flat again. So they're actually waves in the very fabric of space and time created by accelerating mass. If you move your hands in circles around each other right now, you're actually creating tiny, totally imperceptible gravitational waves. But I wanted to know more about what that actually means. What does a gravitational wave do to matter as it passes through? It's pretty hard to understand ripples in four dimensions. It's hard enough to even understand ripples in two or three dimensions. But um, yeah, space-time is this four-dimensional space. And I'll leave, leave it to your imagination to sort of visualize what uh, a distortion in four dimensions actually looks like. Um, but I can give you an idea of what, what a gravitational wave, the effect of a gravitational wave has on things. So if a gravitational wave passes through something, it stretches and squashes it. Uh, if a gravitational pass hit me face on, I'd first get like tall and thin and then I'd get short and fat. Because gravitational waves stretch and squash the universe itself, matter inside that universe, like our bodies and indeed the Earth, gets kind of pulled and stretched and squashed along with it. After Einstein predicted these waves could exist, there were a few decades of debate as to whether the waves were actually real and detectable. Eventually, about four decades later in the 1950s, enough people came to believe that gravitational waves could be detectable, leading to the first proposals to actually try and measure the waves coming from massive bodies moving around in space. Pretty quickly after that, a bit of a maverick called uh, Weber decided he should be able to measure gravitational waves, um, and he built, built the first gravitational wave detectors. They were basically big bells, massive pieces of aluminium that um, just sat there and waited for a gravitational wave to go through them. The gravitational wave would distort them a bit, and then they'd ring like a bell. Now, you might be wondering... If we've been developing detectors for that long, why did it take us until 2015 to see these things? Well, the problem is twofold. Firstly, there's the fact that as space contracts and expands with the gravitational waves, so too does the size of any ruler that we would use to measure it. Say you have a one meter ruler and you're measuring the length of a one meter block of metal. When a gravitational wave comes along and stretches and squishes that block of metal, the ruler is stretched and squished by the same amount and you can't measure any change. There are some clever ways around this, which we'll get to shortly, but the second part of the problem, well, there isn't as much we can do about it. Uh, the biggest gravitational wave you could imagine, which is, say, you're standing standing within a few thousand kilometers of two black holes crashing into each other, um, that, that would stretch and squash me by about two centimeters. Sounds um, like a pretty dangerous place to be. Yeah, it's not really not really where you'd want to be, but um, by the time gravitational waves reach here, us here on Earth, they would not stretch me by centimeters, they would stretch me by tiny, tiny fractions of the size of a proton inside an atom. To pr produce this gravitational wave, you need two black holes, tens, tens of times the size of the sun, crashing into each other. And it's, not, it's also not an easy thing to set up in the lab, so it's not like we're going to do a neat little experiment 
to create some gravitational waves and detect them. Uh, what we do is we use the whole universe as our, as our lab. We set up a gravitational wave detector and we, we wait for these things to happen. Not only are the signals we expect from even the biggest gravitational waves you could imagine absolutely tiny, the events that create those signals are, as we've heard, really, really rare. However, I'm here telling the story, so we know that eventually we did detect these waves. To do so, we had to build an incredibly sensitive machine known as LIGO. LIGO is a Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. LIGO detected its first gravitational wave signal in 2015, a hundred years after Einstein's prediction, and nearly 50 years since Weber developed the first detectors. In fact, I was actually at LIGO Livingston at the time. Um, We were just in the process of tuning up the second version of LIGO that was called Advanced LIGO. We were getting ready for the first observing run when nature beat us to the punch and uh, a massive gravitational wave was detected. It was the collision of two black holes around 30 times the mass of the sun that happened about a billion years ago. This gravitational wave traveled through space for a billion years and reached us and moved. You can think of it as moving one of the mirrors in the LIGO detectors by about one thousandth the diameter of a proton. With the reminiscing out of the way, I asked Carl to tell us a bit about how LIGO actually works. So LIGO works a bit like a laser tape measure. We use the laser light to measure the stretching and squashing of space-time. The actual principle is something called the Michelson interferometer. We take, a, we take a beam of light and we split it a beam splitter and send it four kilometres through a vacuum tube to a mirror far away. The beams bounce off those uh, mirrors and recombine at the beam splitter. And we use the principle of interference. Uh, so when the returning beams arrive, if they, if the mirrors were exactly the same distance apart, they would be in phase and the two waves would add up to produce a bright light. If one of those mirrors moved, they would uh, destructively interfere and then you would get a dark light on our, on our detector. The two tunnels that the light travels down in LIGO are orientated at 90 degrees to each other. This is a clever way of getting around the measurement issue we talked about before. When the wave passes through the Earth, it makes one tunnel longer and the other tunnel shorter at the same time. So the amount of time it takes for the light to bounce between the mirrors in each of the tunnels is different, which causes the interference effect that LIGO detects. So that's all well and good, but why is this a big deal? Why have we included it in this wrap-up? I think that detecting gravitational waves is like adding a new sense to human civilization. Imagine human civilization and there's an infant and 300 years ago where an infant who just learned to see with Galileo first pointing a telescope to the heavens. Uh, gradually we could we learned to see different colors, we saw visible light, we saw radio waves, we out to gamma rays now. Detecting gravitational waves is like the point in our infancy where we finally learned to hear. We've just heard the heartbeat of the universe with two black holes colliding. It's easy to forget that just about everything we know about the universe relies on our ability to detect a different kind of wave, namely electromagnetic waves, or as we more commonly think of them, light. Telescopes, radio wave detectors, even our eyes, these things all rely on the detection of electromagnetic waves. With gravitational waves, we finally have a new, totally separate portal to investigate the universe. As Carl says, we have a new sense that we can use to learn about events out in space. Some scientists are saying we've entered the era of gravitational wave astronomy, where we can use gravitational waves to get information about events that we wouldn't even otherwise have known about. And then we can take it a step further and tell traditional light-based telescopes where they should go looking to find a signal. In fact, this is already happening. 
This is what happened in 2017 with the detection of a binary neutron star collision. In this case, we detected this beautiful gravitational wave. It's, it's this sort of chirp sound that lasts for about a minute. And we could easily say that this signal came from a pair of binary neutron stars. This detection allowed us to tell our partner telescopes to point their telescopes at the sky and look for the flash of light that comes with a binary neutron star collision. These, this flash of light is maybe a bit of an understatement. Neutron stars are made out of pure nuclear material, and when they crash into each other, they're like the biggest nuclear explosions in the universe. The partner's telescopes pointed their telescopes to the sky and saw this flash of light that we call a a kilonova. This has allowed us to definitively say that a kilonova is associated with a binary neutron star collision. We've already learned more about the universe with this fantastic new tool, but let's not stop there. Let's allow ourselves to be a bit fanciful for a moment and think about some of the more out there stuff that we could imagine. I always like to explore the realm of fantasy as well, though. And while right now, warp drives and time travel seem a bit out there, The path forward to such fantasy would be the manipulation of gravity. And I like to emphasize this excitement of the unknown with a quote from Heinrich Hertz. Heinrich Hertz was in his lab talking to a journalist. He'd just successfully transmitted a radio wave from one side of his lab to the other. And the journalist asked him, Heinrich Hertz, of of what possible use are these radio waves? And Heinrich Hertz said, of no possible use whatsoever. I was just trying to prove Maestro Maxwell correct. So imagine that was a 100 years ago. And now the whole world communicates with radio waves. So where might we be in a hundred years after the detection of gravitational waves? This new era of gravitational wave astronomy is truly an exciting time to be alive. We're on the cusp of more incredible, fascinating discoveries about the universe. So there you have it. That completes our State of the Universe address. We hope you've enjoyed this roundup of some of the biggest discoveries in the world of space science in the last decade. If you have, get in touch with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Naked Astronomy. You can find me personally on Twitter at Dr. B.T. McAllister. Or you can go check out the Naked Scientist's uh, main social media pages. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can check out the main Naked Scientist podcast and radio show on BBC or ABC or at thenakedscientists.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, if you wanted to leave this show, Naked Astronomy, a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you listen, or even just tell a friend about it, that would be tremendous. Thanks to all the contributors to the show today, and of course, to you all for listening. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and have a wonderful new year, even if the beginning and end of the year are arbitrarily decided points along the orbit of the Earth around the sun. 